ask you to take your Bibles this morning and please turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 19. 1 Kings 19. 1 Kings 19. And we'll begin reading in verse number 1. The Bible says, Nahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, and with all how he had slain all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger unto Elijah, saying, So let the gods do to me, and more also. If I make not thy life as the life of one of them by tomorrow, about this time. And when he saw that, he arose and went for his life. And came to Beersheba, which belongeth to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree. And he requested for himself that he might die and said, It is enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am not better than my father's. And as he lay and slept under a juniper tree, behold, Then an angel touched him and said unto him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was a cake baking on the coals and a cruise of water at his head. And he did eat and drink and laid him down again. And the angel of the Lord came again the second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, because the journey is too great for thee. I'll title the message this morning, Failure is Not Final. Let's go to the Lord together in prayer. Dear Lord God, we thank you for the blessing to be gathered here in this place together with your people today. Lord, we thank you for your faithfulness and your great love and your kindness to this church, Lord, but yes, also to each individual person that's here today. And I thank you especially for that love and patience and kindness that you've shown me, O God. Dear Lord, I ask you for strength. I ask God that you would touch my mind. Lord, that you would help me to think clearly this morning and to preach with great clarity and simplicity. Lord, I pray that your word would go forth. Lord, that you would give understanding of not just the text and what it says, but of the powerful great truths concerning yourself that are in this text. God, help us to see you, the purity and the perfection of your great character. Dear Lord, I pray that your presence this morning would be both unmistaken and also unavoidable. Help us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Here in 1 Kings chapter 19, what's just taken place in the scriptures in chapters 17 and 18 uh, are some of the most incredible events in all of the Old Testament, in my opinion. At least I say that because it's they're some of my favorite chapters in all of the Old Testament. Elijah has always been a favorite of mine ever since I was a little boy. I'm a pastor's son, and I loved to hear my dad preach on Elijah. In chapter 17, 
um, following 16, of course, at the end of 16, the Bible tells us that a man named Ahab becomes the king of the northern kingdom of Israel. Israel's divided at this time into a northern and a southern kingdom. And Ahab becomes king. He's a wicked, ungodly man. He does more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings that came before him. Then he marries a woman named Jezebel, a woman whose name will forever live in infamy. Uh, She is known for her wickedness, her conniving ways. And we see, as is given to us in the, the chapters following, that Ahab and Jezebel are so wicked that they outlaw the the worship and apparently the preaching and teaching of the Word of God and the the preaching and teaching of the true God of Israel, Jehovah, uh, to the point that the prophets of the Lord are having to hide in exile during this time. We see that the prophets of Baal, a, a pagan foreign deity that Jezebel brought with her from the land of the Zidonians and introduced to Israel, that that is essentially instituted as the state religion of Israel. We see that the prophets of Baal eat at her table. Uh, We might assume from that that they're basically on government payroll. And so these are very dark and evil days here in the northern kingdom of Israel. But Elijah is introduced in chapter 17, verse 1. He bursts onto the scene and somehow he gains access to the king, Ahab himself. And he tells Ahab, as the Lord God of Israel liveth, before whom I stand, there'll be neither rain nor dew these years, but according to my word. He prophesies that God is going to turn off the rain. and He's going to even stop the dew from falling on the ground for a number of years as a measure of judgment against the apostasy of this nation. They're turning away from God. We see that God hides Elijah by the brick terrace. Ravens bring him food. They bring him meat and bread to eat in the morning and the evening. And from Cherith, he goes over to Zarephath at the word of God. And there in Zarephath, he finds a poor widow woman who's preparing the final meal for her and her son before they die. And God does a miracle there and works and causes it so that for a matter of time, likely a couple of years, Uh, The barrel of meal that she has and the cruise of oil never runs out. They're able to eat all through that time and have their needs met by the Lord. And then we see that her son dies. And God again performs another great miracle and raises her boy from the grave at the prayer and request of Elijah. And that's all in chapter 17. Just an amazing series of events. And that's building up to a great crescendo in chapter 18. As God commands Elijah to come out of hiding and come and present himself again to King Ahab. He challenges Ahab to send the 450 prophets of Baal to the top of Mount Carmel. They'll have a showdown to find out just who the real God is, whether it's Baal or whether it's God Jehovah. And you know what takes place in chapter 18. There the, on the top of Mount Carmel before thousands and thousands of Israelites who have come out to see this event. Uh, there the prophets of Baal, they prepare their sacrifice and they cry out and they pray and they ask the false god Baal uh, who was some type of a sun god uh, to send fire down from the heavens to consume this altar to prove himself 
before these thousands of Israelites who have been worshiping Him for the past years. But they cry out. They scream. They are sincere. They are devoted in this belief to Baal. But there's no one who answers their request. The heavens are silent. Elijah begins then to mock the prophets of Baal. When the time for the evening sacrifice comes, he tells them to paraphrase, get out of the way, it's my turn. He prepares his altar. He repairs the altar of the Lord. He sets up twelve stones. And there he gives a, a simple prayer to the Lord. After he has a trench dug around the altar and twelve barrels of water poured out upon the sacrifice, so much water that it fills up the trench around the altar. Then he prays a simple prayer, asking that the glory of God would be revealed. God answers his request. And literally, God sends fire down out of the heavens before the thousands who are gathered there. And it consumes the altar. It licks up the water, consumes the stones, and even licks up the dust. And something incredible then happens. If that, well, that's incredible in itself, amen? And then the thousands of Israelites who were there, uh, these people who have been apostate for many years, they fall down on their faces, and it says in chapter 18, verse 39, they said, the Lord, He is the God. The Lord, He is the God. Imagine this incredible sight of thousands and thousands of apostate Israelites after the miracle that's taken place, they're crying out together. Just imagine the roar of these thousands of people saying, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. Then if that wasn't enough for this one chapter, then Elijah goes back to the top of Mount Carmel and he puts his head between his knees and he prays. He asks God to send rain. It's been three and a half years since there's been any dew or any rain in the land. There's been a great famine. There's been a great cost to this famine. And he prays, and, and, and then the Lord sends rain. Uh, he sends his servant seven times to look out toward the sea and come back and tell him if he sees anything. And the seventh time he comes and he says, I see a cloud coming that's like a man's hand. And he says, get down and tell Ahab that he better get to Jezreel because there's an abundance of rain that's coming. And then to end the chapter, we see in verse 46 of chapter 18, the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he girded up his loins, and he ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. After all these incredible events, uh, Elijah girds up his loins, and he outruns the king's chariot for an approximate distance of 17 miles and comes to Jezreel. Action-packed, amen. Incredible things that take place. Incredible things. And I don't know about you, but oftentimes in my Christian life, when I consider these great things that take place in chapter 17 and 18, I have to honestly tell you I have a hard time identifying sometimes, oftentimes, with all these great things that take place in chapter 17 and 18. Through these chapters, we see an impeccable record of obedience, faithfulness to the Word of God from Elijah. Everything that God says to do, He immediately 
does it. I wish that were my testimony throughout all of my life. And that's what Elijah demonstrates to us in those chapters. Time and time again, the word of the Lord says to do something, and he just simply does it. And we see God's blessing and the victories that ensue from that. Then when we come to chapter 19, I can relate far more to what we see from this man, Elijah. So we see these opening verses of chapter 19. Again, we'll take the time to read them. Verse 1. And Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, and with all how he had slain all the prophets with the sword. You imagine Elijah coming home to Jezebel. Uh, she, I assume, has some knowledge of what's taken place that day of the showdown on top of Mount Carmel. And she's probably been sitting and gleefully imagining to herself uh, Elijah being made a fool and uh, her, her prophets winning the day and all these things. And here comes Ahab home and he brings her no such news. You imagine how that conversation may have gone. And as he comes in and she says, oh, I bet that Elijah made a fool of himself today, didn't he? Well... No, that's not exactly what took place, Jezebel. Uh, what do you mean? And by the way, where are my prophets? All 450 of them went out this morning. Where are they? You came back without them. Well, they're not going to make it home for supper tonight, Jezebel. And he tells her how Elijah slew all of them. And this woman, this wicked woman is enraged. When she hears the news, she's not humbled, though I, I, I'm sure he, he must have told her that the God, the living God, Jehovah, sent fire down out of the sky. She's not impressed by any of this. Her heart is hardened toward the Lord. She is wicked. And her response is given in verse two. Then Jezebel sent a messenger unto Elijah, saying, so let the gods do to me and more also. If I make not thy life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. She tells him, you're going to be dead by this time tomorrow, Elijah. Now, he's there in Jezreel. She apparently knew of his whereabouts. She sends this messenger to him. Consider all that Elijah has seen. He has stood before Ahab and boldly told him that God's alive and I'm standing in his presence. God's going to judge the nation. There's not going to be rain or dew for years. That was boldness. That was faith. And he has seen God feed him by the brook Cherith by ravens bringing him food morning and evening. He's seen what God did at Zarephath, even raising the young man from the grave. He has just come from Mount where he has seen a display of the omnipotence of God like you and I have never seen before with our eyes. And yet when he reads this letter from Jezebel, for the first time in his career, at least as far as what's revealed in the Bible, instead of seeing God, he sees only the circumstances. It tells us in verse 3, and when he saw that, he arose 
and went for his life. We see in this the failure of Elijah. Just as, as you and I do at different times in our life, whenever we get a bit of bad news, whether it's from a doctor, whether it's from an employer, a dear friend, a spouse, you name it. And, and we know what it is to go from having a, a just a cheerful, sunny, wonderful day to receiving some news that derails everything. And, and to going from a moment of walking with God and even enjoying His presence and singing hymns in our heart to the Lord, to hearing something that, that causes us in an instant to be overwhelmed and overcome with fear and dread. It can cause us, just like Peter, walking on the stormy seas. He gets out of the boat and he's walking to Jesus. And there in an instant, Peter, in the very same way, takes his eyes off of the Lord. And he's absolutely overcome and eat up with fear. And he begins to sink. That's the same thing that we see here from Elijah. He takes his eyes off the Lord. He forgets the presence of the Lord. And he's overcome with fear here in this moment. So we see first off, he is disgraced by fear. He forgets God. His faith is gone. And he reacts to his fear. Fear is so powerful, isn't it? I mean, we've seen it in the last nearly two years in this country. Uh, people just absolutely overcome with fear. Fear is addictive, isn't it? I mean, we, we have uh, probably easily one of the most, if not the most popular genre of entertainment in the United States has got to be fear, horror. It, it's, it's addictive. Uh, for some reason, there, there's a hunger for it. Uh, within our human bodies, within our, our human condition. But it's powerful. And fear can control us, can't it? And I don't care how strong and how tough you are, you can probably, if you're honest, look back to some point in your life where you, like Elijah, were overcome with fear in this way. When something unexpected comes along that you didn't want to hear, you didn't want in your life, but there it is. And it just overwhelms you in an instant. That's what takes place here with the man of God, with Elijah. He arose and went for his life. He's afraid of her threat. And he gets out of Jezreel. He leaves. We see now it says, And he came to Beersheba, which belongeth to Judah, and left his servant there. He's so overcome with fear, he doesn't just leave the city of Jezreel. But he goes down to the town of Beersheba, and this is very significant when it says, which belongeth to Judah. If you remember, I said this is during a period of time that Israel's divided into two kingdoms. Elijah was a citizen of northern Israel where Ahab is king. 
It says he went to Judah. That's the southern kingdom. He was so afraid. He didn't just leave the town. He got out of the country. He left the jurisdiction of Ahab and Jezebel and went to another jurisdiction, another nation. He goes all the way to Judah, it says. Verse 4, but he himself, well, it said at the end of verse 3, he left his servant there in Beersheba. Verse 4, but he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree. He leaves his servant and he takes off into the wilderness. I've read this is likely the wilderness of Sinai. A desolate wilderness, a desolate place where nobody's around. So he isolates himself. There's so much about our human nature that we can see in this, isn't there? Uh, how he's overcome with fear. And, and isn't it just like all of us, most likely, that, that when we are really discouraged, uh, when we are disgraced, we want to get alone, don't we? We, we, we want to get alone. He leads his servant and he isolates himself by going into this barren wilderness all alone. He, he's disgraced by fear. And he's discouraged by his failure. Notice what he says to God. Uh, it says, and he requested for himself that he might die and said, it is enough. Uh, here, uh, I, I heard just week before last. Uh, I was privy uh, to a situation of a 13-year-old boy who was threatening suicide. Threatening suicide. And most of us probably know someone, or at least of someone, who has been in a state where they've, they've threatened suicide. And, and we know there, there's much that can be said about that. Uh, unfortunately, sometimes people will, will do it for attention and that sort of thing. It can be a very selfish thing. I'll, I'll never forget as long as my li- uh, as I live, my, my papa was a very outspoken man. All right, he'd say what was on his mind, and he just he had a way uh, with people with words. And he had a, a son-in-law who was just no account. Um, I mean, my my aunt had really picked one. Okay, and uh, this guy was, was all the time just um, pulling all these shenanigans and stuff and. And uh, my, my aunt called my papa one day, and she said, uh, my husband, he, he's over at the graveyard, and he says he's going to kill himself. Won't you go talk to him? She kept begging him to go. Finally, he said, I'll go. So he goes down to the graveyard. He pulled up, and there, there was his son-in-law. And he went over to him. He called his name and said, yeah, Lee. He, papa said, are you going to kill yourself? He said, I'm going to do it. Papa said, if you don't do it, everybody's going to say you're a liar. <laughs> and he got in his car and he drove back home. <laughs> so we, we know situations like, you know, people may, may want attention and things like that. But here, Elijah's serious. He's not full of himself and wanting attention. It's just him and God. And he's so overcome with grief. He, he is disgraced and he is so discouraged. I, I mean, this has been a faithful man of God, a faithful prophet. And he's fallen to such a low point where with all earnestness and, and seriousness, he's saying, God, I just want to die. It is enough. 
take away my life. He is facing the ultimate discouragement. Now, why is he so discouraged after all that he has seen just the day before on Mount Carmel? I believe what has hit him as he was overcome with fear and as he makes his trek out of Israel down to Judah and then out to the wilderness, I think the enormity of this failure really comes to dawn on Elijah's heart. Consider again what has just taken place. I mean, just the day before he was on Mount Carmel, God has orchestrated all these events to bring Israel, an apostate nation, to the place where that thousands of them are falling on the ground and saying, the Lord, He is God, the Lord, He is God. It seems that Israel is primed and ready for a national revival. If Elijah was ever needed in Israel, it was at this time. God has done an incredible thing to bring the nation to this point. And now it's time for Elijah to lead this revival, to lead Israel back to God. And what has he done? He left. He left. After all the years of preparation, the years of the miraculous and providential work of God to bring the nation to this place. And at the most critical time, the most critical moment, Elijah leaves. Now I want to add that throughout the history of the northern kingdom of Israel, we never find another time where they are so close to revival. And the nation never experiences revival before its ultimate demise. And yet this is the time and the place where it seems like it's on the doorstep. And Elijah leaves. The enormity of this failure must have just been unbearable to him. Thus, in his heart, he cries out, God. Just take my life. Take my life. Notice what he says at the end of verse 4. This also is very telling. He says, for I am not better than my fathers. He talks about his fathers. He's referring to the generations of, of the men of northern Israel who were all apostate on the Lord. Uh, going back to whenever Israel divided into the two separate kingdoms, we read about Jeroboam, the first king of northern Israel. He leads the nation to turn their back on God and to worship the golden calf. And Elijah's saying, I'm no better than my fathers who apostatized on the Lord. They turned their back on God and fell and worshiped the golden calf. I'm no better than them. This man is overwhelmed with discouragement over his failure. We see that he just lays down under this juniper tree out in the wilderness. He is depleted from his flight. And think of just the, the, the unbelievable amounts of, of, of pressure that he has felt just from Mount Carmel and the events of that day and then walking all these miles the day after. Plus, just fear in itself will deplete you, won't it? 
Discouragement will deplete you. We find Elijah laying underneath this juniper tree, absolutely 100% worn plumb out, as we say here in East Tennessee. He is depleted. Now, in the previous chapter, we see God demonstrating the attribute of omnipotence, of power to the masses. And now we see coming into chapter 19 and into the upcoming verses, God's attributes of faithfulness and love and mercy demonstrated to a failed individual. So this is where we find Elijah all alone. He got a bad case of the blues. And and again, human nature is so interesting, isn't it? It, it, Have you ever thought how funny it is that we have a whole genre of music called the blues? I mean, when we're down, we really want to be down, don't we? Everybody get away from me, just let me be down. Be miserable. That's where he is. In verse 5. And as he lay and slept under a juniper tree, behold, then an angel touched him and said unto him, Arise and eat. Consider now just quickly how God demonstrates his love to Elijah in this place of great failure. He demonstrates his love first off through his presence. Now it said there in verse 5 that we just read that that um, an angel touched him. You'll notice in verse 7 it says, and the angel of the Lord. You're familiar with how in the Old Testament, time and time again, it, it is made clear that when the scriptures refer to an angel of the Lord, is referring not to just some random angel, but it's referring to the Lord Jesus Christ himself. You see that very clearly in Judges chapter 2 when the children of Israel gather at Bokan. The angel of the Lord comes to them, and in verse 2 he speaks in the first tense as God. None could do that but Christ. And I believe that what we have here is absolutely the Lord Jesus himself coming to Elijah. I think one of the greatest keys to Elijah's successful ministry in chapter 17 and 18 are that in those places he recognized the presence of God wherever he was. 17 and 1, whenever he stands before Ahab, he remember he said, as the Lord God of Israel liveth before whom I stand. King Ahab was it any great man to him? He wasn't afraid of Ahab because he recognized the presence of God as he stood before Ahab. Again, when he meets Ahab in chapter 18, or chapter, um, yeah, chapter 18, verse 15, he again refers to standing in the presence of God. And yet, isn't it interesting that as he's overwhelmed with fear, and for the first time in the biblical record of Elijah's life, he totally forgets about the presence of God. And he's overcome with fear and he runs out into the desert. It is here in this place that he experiences the presence of Christ 
in a way that he has never experienced the presence of God any other time before now. That Christ comes to him personally as he is in this place. Isn't it wonderful that we see this man who has failed royally? Not just himself, but in a sense, he has failed his nation. And yet the Lord Jesus comes to him. And he comes gently. He comes quietly. He said there, as he slept underneath the juniper tree in verse 5, then an angel touched him. He didn't kick him in the ribs. He didn't kick him and say, wake up. You, you, you sorry prophet, you failure, you. No, he comes to him and he just touches him. He gently awakens him. And he says to him, arise and eat. <laughs> so he wakes up after being totally depleted. The Lord allows him to go asleep. And as soon as he awakes, there's the angel of the Lord with And he doesn't remind him of his failures. He doesn't rub his nose in it. Oh, no. But he says, arise and eat. Now, he didn't have any provisions of his own. He has nothing left. He's just looking to die. But here the angel of the Lord has personally come to him. And he's prepared him a meal. He's giving him Provision to meet his current need, his current depletion. Now, now Elijah at this point, he has eaten food, meat and bread that was brought to him by a raven. He has eaten uh, meal and oil, bread uh, that came from canisters that would that would not and could not run out. But he's never had a meal that was prepared by the angel of the Lord himself. This is the, the most interesting, the best, the finest meal of his ministry. And it comes to him at his lowest point. Oh, isn't the Lord good to come to us, even in the midst of failures, even in the midst of great discouragement, and to prepare us a meal, to demonstrate his faithfulness, in the midst of our failures in this way. Oh, friend, we, we would never have recognized and seen this characteristic, this perfect attribute of God in the life of, um, in the life of Elijah, if not for this failure. Amen? And the same goes for our life, even in the midst of our greatest failures. The Lord so often demonstrates His love and His care for us in a way that it would be impossible for us to recognize and appreciate at any other time. The Lord comes to him. He touches him and says, Arise and eat. Verse 6, And he looked, and behold, there was a cake, bacon on the coals, and a cruise of water at his head, and he did eat and drink and laid him down again. Friend, God loved Elijah. No less in the wilderness than he did on Mount Carmel. And I sure am thankful for that this morning. 
So so the angel tells him, arise and eat. And he opens up his eyes to see what kind of victuals that he had. What kind of food the Lord had made him. And again, just consider how special this is. An angel of the Lord has prepared him a meal. And I'm so thankful, brothers and sisters, to see that it wasn't no salad either. It wasn't kale. No. It was a cake. Bacon on the glass. That's what the Bible says. Amen. In the midst of his failure, God makes him a cake. And he sees the cake. Bacon on the coals. You remember when the Lord Jesus had risen from the grave there at the end of the Gospel of John? And the disciples, it seems there, the disciples are also in a place of failure. Instead of waiting on the Lord, they've gone back to the fishing trade. And they're out that night, and in the morning they see Jesus on the shore in His resurrected body. Remember what He told them? He said, come and die. And there the Lord Jesus in that glorified, resurrected body had prepared them a meal there that they ate with Him on the seashore. Here, he's baked Elijah a cake, and it says that he has a cruise of water right there in his head. I believe it was, was the old Baptist preacher F.B. Meyer when, when talking about this, this particular verse of Scripture. He asked the question, he said, here he is in the Sinai wilderness. Where did this water come from? There's been a great famine in the land for years. Now, rain had just come the day before, but here he's many miles away down in the wilderness. Where did the water come from? And F.B. Meyer asked this question. He said, could it be that the Lord Jesus, as he stood up from his throne in glory to come down and to personally meet with Elijah in this place, that he took a cup there, and he dipped it down into that river that flows from the very throne of God, and that when he brought that down from glory to give to Elijah. I don't know. That's, that's all just, just imagination and speculation. But the fact is, the water came from somewhere, didn't it? The Lord brought him cool, refreshing water. And he arises and he eats. Notice this too, that he has failed. Before this point, he has obeyed the Lord in many difficult tasks. And now he's failed. And when the Lord comes to him, he does give him a command, but it's so simple and it's so easy. It's simply arise and eat. And we see Elijah's pathway of of obedience begin again as he obeys this simple command that the Lord has given, just arise and eat. I'm so thankful that the Lord is our shepherd and we shall not want. And sometimes it is the will of God, His command for us simply to lie down by still waters. To rest, to be replenished, to take what He's given us, what He has brought to us, even in the midst of our failures and our discouragements. Praise the Lord for His goodness and His care. Then He lays down again in verse 6. He goes back to sleep. Verse 7 The angel of the Lord came again the second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat. Uh, So either he didn't finish his first meal or the Lord made him some more. We don't know. But he wakes up then. He tells him, Arise and eat. And yet there's a little more to what he says this time. Notice this at the end of verse 7. Because the journey is too great for thee. 
This, this that he says to Elijah is just a statement that, that in my mind is pregnant. It is full of so much more than initially meets the eyes. He's telling Elijah by saying this, that I'm not done. I'm not through working in and through your life. There is a journey that still lies ahead of you. And Elijah, it's a great journey. It's a journey that's so great and powerful that it's too great for you to make it in your own strength. Don't you know that Elijah, as he was under that tree in discouragement, he surely must have thought, I've messed up so bad that God's done with me. He did all this work in my life to bring me to this point, and I failed him when it mattered most. God is done with me. And perhaps the thought entered his mind, I've seen the fire fall on Mount Carmel, and I'll never see the fire fall again in my life. Yet now the angel of the Lord tells him, you need to arise and eat, for the journey's too great for thee. And you know, we find later on in Elijah's life, in 2 Kings chapter 1, that he does live to see the fire fall once again. Oh, I believe this is a favorite and very useful tactic of the devil. Whenever a child of God is down and out in discouragement, after they have failed the Lord, the devil comes in and he does all he can to convince that person that they're done. God is through with them. They've messed up too bad this time in their life. And yet we can see from the life of Elijah that failure is not final for the child of God. Failure is sure, it is certain to be a part of our walk with God. Never from His part, but always from mine. It's bound to be part of our experience. And yet we see that even though this man failed so badly, the Lord wasn't through with him. The, the, the Lord met his present need and he anticipated his coming need as well. And it says in verse 8, And he arose... And did eat and drink, and went in the strength of that meat forty days and forty nights unto Horeb, the Mount of God. And God's work in Elijah's life continued, though it seemed to Elijah that all was over, that it had come to an end because of his failure. It wasn't the end. We find the Apostle Paul asking the question in Romans 8, 35. And this is geared to the believer, of course. He says, "What? who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Now notice these things that he says. Shall tribulation or distress? Now the distress he mentions there could only be from the human side because God is never distressed. There is no distress that you and I could or ever will face in this life that will separate us from the faithful love of God. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine, nakedness, peril or sword. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors of him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height, nor depth, 
nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. And I want to read with, um, end with these words from Psalm 36, verse 5. Thy mercy, O Lord, is in the heavens, and thy faithfulness reacheth unto the clouds. Thy righteousness is like the great mountains. Thy judgments are a great deep. O Lord, thou preservest man and beast. How excellent is thy loving kindness, O God. Therefore, the children of men put their trust under the shadow of thy wings. They shall be abundantly satisfied with the fatness of thy house. and Thou shalt make them drink of the river of thy pleasures. For with thee is the fountain of life. In thy light we shall see light. God is faithful. Even in the midst of our failures, our discouragements. That's the message. Come on, Pastor.